Good evening. Happy Memorial Day. Good to see you all. If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you could be here with us and worship with us this evening. Uh, this is a pretty special Sunday for us in that we have guests, and uh, our guest worship leaders are Paige CXVI. Uh, they're friends of ours. I think I met them maybe four, five, six years ago. We actually uh, were, they were playing at a retreat that I was speaking at, and um, it was a great time getting to know them. Uh, so this is, well, this is not, I keep doing this. This is not Tifa, but Tifa sits here when she's playing, and then her husband, Reed. And then Dan's on the drums here. They're originally from Colorado, and they've been traveling around. And they, they play at several different churches. And many churches that we have relationships with throughout the country, primarily here on the West Coast. And then they were going to—this um, was going to be their last stop. And so we're thankful to have them here. So when you guys get a chance to see them after the service, make sure to thank them for being here. They're going to hop in a van and, and then drive back to California. Uh, one announcement that I have before we get into the book of Romans, and that is we have a class coming up, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. So that's June 5th, and the title of the class is Seeing Jesus in the Book of Revelation. Um, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know how hard it is to read it, and really hard to see what's the gospel in it, and how do we understand Christ in the book of Revelation. And we're, I think we have the best teacher to teach that, and that's Benjamin Jensen, who's one of our pastoral residents, who's a seminary grad, and he will do a phenomenal job. And so uh, there's not a whole lot we're doing over the summer intentionally. We want people to not only be in communities, but to take advantage of supplementing your discipleship and taking a class. So again, 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m., there's child care provided. You can sign up at redemptionaz.com, June 5th, seeing Jesus in the book of Revelation. That's all I have for our our announcements. Would you guys take your Bibles and meet me in Romans chapter 2? Um, If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really high so that one of the guys will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Just go ahead and keep your hand raised high. Um, If you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we're handing out so that you can have a copy of God's Word uh, to take with you to study and to grow in. Um, But if you do own one but you forgot it, go ahead and raise your hand and you can just place it back on the shelf on your way out. Uh, For those of you who are just joining us, we are week eight on a 70-week series looking at the book of Romans. Um, This was a letter that was written by a man by the name of Apostle Paul, and he wrote this letter to the church that's in Rome. To kind of catch you up to speed or where we'll be at in chapter 2, verses 6 and 11, what we looked at for about four weeks is verses 1, or chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And what we saw there is that in response to people suppressing the truth about God or denying God or not believing in God, we see that his wrath was being revealed. In fact, what we said is if you can wrap up those verses in one word, it would be God's wrath. And then we got to chapter 2, and Paul began to say, not only do people who didn't grow up in church, will they be judged, and that word was wrath. Um, In chapter 2, Paul begins to look at the religious people. And we said that religious in a very pejorative way, in a negative way, and the word that that would... uh, be able to communicate chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, so last week, today, next week, was the word judgment. And last week, we looked at Paul just went after the religious people and saying, if you pursue all the imperatives of Scripture, so everything God tells you to do, and you do all those things, apart from repentance, apart from joy in God and his goodness and kindness, then you too will be judged, because the only way that a Christian lives is a life of repentance. And we said repentance is not a nasty word. It's not a word that we should be afraid of, but it's a way of life. It's looking at Jesus, looking at the grace in which he's extended to us, and our whole lives being lived from there. Well, now we come to verses 6 through 11 in chapter 2, which may be one of the more confusing texts to teach in chapter 2. But Paul continues to talk about is the judgment of God. 
And so the lineup that he gives us here in these short verses is, one, he shows us God is judge. So God the judge. And then he shows us two types of people and the type of deeds in which he's judging. And that he's judging us according to our works. One person is someone who seeks his glory and responds to the good news of Jesus. The other person is a person who denies Jesus and therefore seeks themselves. So people who seek God's glory and people who are self-seekers all under God's judgment. And so Paul is going to be able to um, unpack that for us this evening. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So that's where Paul begins. Yesterday, um, uh, I was at a wedding. And while I was there, I was talking to, the, it was a church in Tempe, I'm not going to mention the name, and I was talking to one of the pastors there the day before, and we were just talking about church in general, and, and um, somehow it came up, she was asking me what she should wear for the wedding, because at this particular church, you couldn't, as me officiating the wedding, because I wasn't ordained in this church, I couldn't administer the sacraments or uh, do the vows, so she had to come in, so we kind of tag-teamed this wedding, and I've never done this before, but it's kind of cool. And so she was saying, how, um, what should I wear? And I said, what do you normally wear when you teach? And she goes, well, it depends on what I'm teaching on. And I'm like, that sounds awesome, right? So maybe what I should do is look at whatever the topic is, and then like, I'll pick my wardrobe. So today, knowing that we're going to talk about judgment, I wore this red shirt, right? <laughs> Black shoes, be like, I'm bringing it, right? No. Uh, so I asked her, I said, well, what if you're teaching on God's judgment? And she looked at me, and she goes, well, we don't teach on jo- God's judgment. We don't believe God is a God who judges. And I was like, awkward. They were like, oh, well, that's what I'm teaching on on Sunday. <laughs> right? And, 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 and I, I kind of I chuckled at that because on, on the way home, I was talking to my wife, and I'm like, this is crazy. Because when I think about judgment, what I think about when I hear God's judgment, and I know we don't like that word, but God, is, God judges. I think about um, one of the best French poets that we had in the 90s by the name of Tupac Shakur. Right? <laughs> Tupac had this... Uh, <laughs> Is African French. <laughs> Tupac had a song that came out in 1999 that said, only God can judge me. And the lyrics I wouldn't put on the screen here, but um, it, was, it, was a, it was a song just saying, listen, people are flawed and I'm not going to let another man judge me. Like I came out of the gutter. I got the thug life written on my chest. I mean, Tupac, right? Icon musically, no matter what genre. Um, but it was interesting to think that Tupac had better theology than this particular church in Tempe. It was like, that's interesting. Like, wow, I've never thought about Tupac, the great theologian, right? (laughs) Here's the problem with that. We don't like a God who judges. And when we don't like a God who judges, what we're saying is we don't like the God of the Bible. When we look at God, we have to look at the totality of who he, at, who he is as a being. So we love his love, and we love looking at his grace, but we looked at his wrath, and we looked at his mercy, but we looked at his goodness and his kindness. And what Paul is trying to unpack here is God is a judge, and he's a just judge. And just before we even get into what he's talking about clearly here in the text, just on a universal standpoint, we need God to be a judge. If there's ever been a generation that cries out for justice, right? We want, we want justice to the unjust things in our world. We need to know that there is an absolute objective moral standard of who is God. I mean, think about this. Last Sunday, we came to service. We worshiped with one another. We went to work on Monday. We went to school. We did whatever we were doing. We came home. We turned the news. And we saw that tornadoes were ripping through Oklahoma. 
And you saw houses and schools ravished. You saw people shaking and they're trying to figure out the death tolls. And we look at that and we go, okay, that's a result of evil in this world. That's not a part of when God created this world. He didn't say, let there be this, let there be that, and let there be tornadoes. Like that didn't happen. That's a result of sin. That's a result of the effects of sin and evil in our world on a cosmic level. And in fact, we're in, we're, we will get here in a, few, in a couple of months once we get to Romans chapter 5. But Romans says that even creation, this material world, it is groaning, crying out for a savior. Crying out for one who could come and the only one who can come to get rid of the effects of evil. And the way in which that happens is that we have a God who judges, which lets us know that evil will not continue to triumph all the way until eternity. On this thought, Leon Morris, who's a theologian, says this. The doctrine of final judgment stresses man's accountability and certainty that justice will finally triumph over all the wrongs which are part, which are, which are part of the parcel of life here and now. The former gives a dignity to the humblest action. The latter brings calmness and assurance to those in the thick of the battle. This doctrine gives meaning to life. The Christian view of judgment means that history moves to a goal. Judgment protects the ideal of the triumph of God, of good and e- of, excuse me, of good, God and good. It is unthinkable that the present conflict between good and evil should last throughout eternity. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. That's good news for us to know that we have a God who judges. And what Paul does in communicating this God that we need to understand him when it comes to the way in which he judges humanity. That he judges all of humanity, whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God. And he judges us according to our acts. And so if we're going to look at God as a judge, we have to understand what that means. And uh, one, we need to understand that it's, he's not just a judge in the Old Testament. That's what we naturally think about God's judgment if we do think of it or God's wrath. But we see from the very beginning of the story to the end that God judges. In the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sin, he judges them. Later on, when it comes to Noah and the times of Noah, he judges them by bringing a flood. And we've joked around with this before, but um, most of the times we read these stories to our kids as if they're like really good bedtime stories. But when you think about it, they're not. Like they're, they're not happy endings. I mean, it's great for Noah and his friends, but not everybody else, right? And my son, who's named Noah, loves it. But I mean, I can't imagine reading that story to him like, hey, look at this story. It's great. This guy named Noah, just like you. He built a boat. And then God protected him, and they were all on there. Well, Dad, what happened to the rest of the people? They all died. <laughs> Good night, baby. Right? <laughs> like, that, like that was a part of God's judgment. And on and on and on through the Old Testament, we see that God judges. And you say, what about the New Testament? Well, when the New Testament comes, we see that Jesus himself says that there's going to be judgment for the Jews that rejected Christ. That Jesus becomes the judge. We love a Jesus who loves, but we don't really like a Jesus who judges. But he says, I'm going to judge. Matthew chapter 16, he says, I'm going to judge you according to your works. And then on in the New Testament, you, you see in Acts chapter 5, one of the weirdest scenes where there's a man named um, Ananias and Sapphira, like very bad names, but they weren't judged on their names. These two people, they begin to lie to God. They tried to pretend that they were giving more money than what they were. And the man comes in, he lies, bam, God strikes him down. And then his wife comes in, and they're like, hey, did you really do this? And bam, she lies. God strikes her down. And, like, the whole church is like, we better, we better get our act right, right? And then in 1 Corinthians, you see Paul actually giving uh, instructions about the Lord's Supper, about communion. And he's saying, when you come to communion, you come with reverence. 
And he's saying some of you are not coming to the table with reverence. Now, reverence doesn't mean that you, don't, you come cleaned up and you come with no sin. No, sin is a prerequisite of the table. Um, it's coming, not thinking about God, not trusting in him, believing in him, and just kind of coming to the table in a, in a very ritualistic way. And he says there's judgment for that all the way to the book of Revelation. So we see a God who judges. He judges in authority. That God alone has authority. He's sovereign. And so in the, in the biblical times, when you heard about a king, a king is one who has authority to rule the nations. Well, God is, is king, and he's ushering in his kingdom. And so he has authority. Um, and, 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 and in our modern states, what we have is we have the legislator and the judiciary, and they're divided, um, not with God. He's both lawmaker and judge. So he has authority. And he also does what is good and what is right and what is perfect and beautiful. So he's not a cold-hearted judge, right? We think of certain judges in our context, and we have minds of like, or our mind comes, what comes to mind is, you know, maybe some clown we see on TV, excuse me, somebody we see on TV, um, or, or, you know, Uncle Phil, or um, somebody that like maybe judges dancing with the stars or American Idol, and, and that's not God. God's not like Randy Jackson, right? Like, he's not up there going, yo, yo, your life, bro, it's in sin, right? That's not how, that's not how it works. He's, he's, he, he loves righteousness, and he hates iniquity, and so he's going to judge iniquity and sin and brokenness, and, and he's going to redeem righteousness, and so it's always good. It's always perfect. It's always right. It's always beautiful, and God also has wisdom discernment and truth and he judges in those those three wisdom discernment and truth what that means is we can hide from each other in fact we're really good at it like we can hide from each other we can't hide from god that when we stand before god he's going to know every single thing that we've ever done everything right the thought of that is somewhat daunting that somehow you're going to get a memory of everything you've ever done god has never forgotten and seen it all and and he's going to he's going to say here's your life and so he knows and lastly god judges in power and power I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom before and you're there because of something you've done. I'm not saying that I have a bunch, right? One ticket. And I just remember like walking to this courtroom down there in downtown Tempe and everything was like, whatever, it's a speeding ticket. Well, as soon as the judge walked in, it's all rise. It got serious. It was like, oh, shoot, like your honor, you start speaking better English. And um, it's it's kind of a frightening scenario. Well, a few years ago, um, there was a... um, there was an incident, it made national news where there was an, a football player, a current football player at ASU, and then a player that used to play at the, on the team. They didn't know each other. However, they were at the wrong place at the wrong time and had an altercation. One guy had a gun and ended up uh, taking the life of another individual. Well, after the trial was over, when it came to the sentencing because of what this person had done, they had certain people come in and speak on behalf of both people if they knew both of them. Well, I was one of the people that were brought in to speak, and this, the, whole, the whole deal was just kind of weird and... and um, and hard. Well, finally, after the judge had everything she needed, she comes in, this little bitty lady comes in, and yet everybody was intimidated by her because she had uh, the ability to say, this is what the sentence is going to be. And we weren't necessarily like, terrified because of what he did, because there was going to be a response to the crime that he committed, but somehow this, this lady had weight. But what's different here is she can pronounce the sentence, but she was not going to carry it out. Some other branch was going to do that. When it comes to God and power, that God himself, according to his holy objective standard, will look at us and pronounce the judgment, and he himself will carry it out. In fact, that's where we begin here in verse 6. When Paul says um, in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works, that he is a God who judged, and he will render. Um, Normally in our English word, that render means give, but it means to pay back, to reimburse. 
Meaning God's going to look at your life and say, here's what I'm going to give back to you for what you have done. Everything you've done in the totality of your life, here's what I'm going to do for you. Meaning you're going to get what you deserve. That's what he's saying. I'm looking at your life and I'm looking at your actions and no one's going to be able to escape this. He says, everyone, this is universal judgment. And he's going to do it according to works. And now what Paul begins to do is show the two different people of which he's going to judge. Now, I want to let you know something about this text. It's called a a chiasm. And what that means is the way that it's structured will give you the center of it. But so verse 6 and verse 11 go together. Verse 7 and verse 10 go together. Those would be the the ones that seek glory. And then verses 8 and 9 at the very center of it, those would be the self-seekers. And so when we look at the first group of people that Paul talks about, those who seek glory, it would be in verses 7 as well as verses 10. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here. Here, Here's what he says in verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 10. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. I'm going to pause here for a second because if you've been at redemption for a week, you're going to read verse 7 or hear verse 7 and go, wait a minute. That seems inconsistent to everything that I've heard here. That seems inconsistent to everything I've heard within biblical Christianity and Protestant Christianity. And that is this. When you read it at first glance, it says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor immortality, he will give eternal life. So it seems like what Paul is saying is if you, in patience and doing well, you seek honor, you seek glory, you seek immortality, then God will say, because of your good life and because of what you've done, now I will receive you into heaven. It seems like work-based salvation, but that's not what Paul is saying. Here's what to do first. This is why I said this is one of the weirdest things to teach here. Um, We have to realize what's not in question here. And what's not in, in question in this text is the doctrine of justification or how a man or a woman or a child is made right before God. And whenever we see difficult texts in the scripture, we have to let other scriptures interpret that scripture. So hold your place with me in Romans chapter 2, and then why don't you just look over to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. It's for, it says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So it means works will not make you right before God. Okay, go on to chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He says, to the one who does not work, but believes, who rests, who trusts, it's faith. Turn one more to chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's what Paul is saying. Um, Justification, the way that we're made right before God. It is an act of free free grace of God, meaning unmerited. We did nothing for this. God gives us this grace. And the way that it's channeled to us is by faith, which in itself is grace, another form of grace and is a gift. So the way that we are made right before God is not by anything we do, but all of what God does. So what is Paul talking about? Well, there's a difference between the root and the fruit. Paul is not talking about the root. He's talking about the fruit. This, This may help. If you think about a tree, uh, an apple tree, and you look at an apple tree, and the apple tree has nice red apples, and you walk up to the tree, and you pick off the apple, and you eat it, and you wow, this is a really good apple. This is great. The apple shows that the tree has life. It's evidence. But we would know that, yes, the apple does show that the tree has life, but the apple did not give the tree life. The roots gave the tree life. 
Paul has been arguing, and will argue in all the Romans, that the root is something that God does apart from us and his sovereign grace. But when that seed, and that seed being the gospel, is planted in an individual and a group of people, when it is watered, when it is cultivated, when weeds are pulled, in essence, when there's community and discipleship in that life, there's maturity is inevitable. And that tree, given the proper nutrients of the word of God and prayer and God's people, will grow and it will produce fruit. So Paul is looking at the evidence. And so in essence, he's saying what God is doing in judgment is he is the divine fruit inspector and he knows what is good fruit that shows evidence of life. And so now getting back to verse 7 and verse 10, this should be the ideal life of every single man of God and every single woman of God in this room. And not just in this room, but in this world that in response to the good news of Christ Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection— That it begins in grace, which God gives us, and it continues in grace as we respond to that grace. This is the blessed union that we have with Christ, that Christ and his life is infused into ours, and the works that we produce from that is not necessarily all our works. It is a response to Christ himself, the spirit of Christ in us, working through us, but we produce good works. In a church like ours that we preach grace, we preach grace, sometimes it seems like we're not for good works. And we have some people who are like, don't tell me to do good works. That's legalism. No, guys. It's obedience. It's a weird concept, right? It's response to God's grace. And here's what Paul says. That's that's the good life. It's looking to Jesus and responding to him. And and, and here's what Paul goes on to say here in verse 7 that I love. He says, now those, those people who love Jesus and they see him, And they respond to that good news. And in responding to the good news, it says, who by patience and doing well see glory, honor, and immortality. That patience there, it is God-given. It is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. It is something that the Spirit brings in our life. It is Christ living in and through us. And so what he's saying is, this is not people who are looking for short-term gain. This is not people who just do a couple things and go, I wonder where the fruit's going to come from. This is a lifestyle. This is a life that is in full submission to the lordship of Christ Jesus. Um, these are people, the collective of people that live in response to the gospel. These are people who say like the apostle Paul does in Galatians chapter 2, that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life that I live now, I live in confidence. Or I live in faith in the son of God. He lives through me. He's working through me and this patience is working through me. And a, and a lifestyle of obedience. And it says, in this life, you seek glory, immortality, and honor. And if you put those together, what Paul is saying is that it's, it's glory in itself is the, the manifestation of the, the nature of God. And that when people are, come to grips with the gospel of Christ Jesus, that they desire and pray to be the vehicle of which that nature is displayed to the world around us. And so that means we take the presence of Christ that is in us and response and with the gospel of Christ Jesus that we live out our lives out loud as witnesses of God. We do this in every area of life. We do this in vocation. And so tomorrow when you go to work, well, I keep saying that. You won't go to work tomorrow, most of you, all right? Tuesday when you go back to work, you do that. You live out loud. You do it in your neighborhoods. You do it with your family, your friends, the people around you to display the work of Christ. This particular person, this man, this woman, this group of people, that they are in awe and inspired with the work of Christ. That that this is not someone by any means is seeking glory for themselves. This is not a person saying, how can I get fame? How can I get mine? Um, This is not a group of people. This is not a church. It's not us saying, how can redemption be known? 
But it's people are saying, I am so hidden in Christ. Like we, we sing the song, Rock of Ages, clip from me. Like I want to be so hidden in Christ that in everything I do, whether I speak or whether I talk or whether I eat, whether I sing, whether I draw, whether I play a sport, the three of you, whatever, whatever it is that I do, right? I want to do it for Christ. And I want his name and I want his kingdom to be revealed to the people in the places around me. What, what this is, this is a holy obsession with God. This is a holy obsession with his agenda and what he's doing in the world, what he started, what he's doing in Christ, and what he would do in Christ in every area of your life. Paul says to these people, they seek this glory, and it's in response to the good news of Jesus. And what I love about this is these people don't only um, seek this glory, they desire it. They desire to see this world look more like the way that it will be. Uh, Pastor, Pastor Jason Raber here has, has given me the Chronicles of Narnia, so you have to read this. And so I've been reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my four-year-old. We've been reading together, and I know I should have been reading this. I like C.S. Lewis. I know you can't even be a member of this church and not like C.S. Lewis. He is pretty amazing. And so this book is, is just amazing. I've seen the movie, but the book's way better. And what I love so much is every time they talk about Aslan drawing near, right, and then there's just this pause. And the way that C.S. Lewis writes is amazing. And, and he goes, it's kind of you get this feeling. And this kid gets this feeling. And it gets down to Lucy, who's the youngest girl. And to Lucy, the feeling she got when she heard Aslan is, is drawing near is the feeling that you get when you know it's the first day of the beginning of a holiday. And what I love about that is they're in Narnia. Narnia is not the way it's supposed to be. But when they hear Aslan is on the move, they know that one day it will be restored. And I think as believers of God, when we understand when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, that he brought something. He brought something by the presence of his, his work and his work on the cross and his resurrection. And he gave his people, every single one of us in this room that would believe in Christ, the spirit. The spirit of God. The spirit of the kingdom at work now. The power of God in you. Christ in you. The mind of Christ in you. It's beautiful. In fact, when I tell people all the time, the only thing about you that's heaven ready, um, it's not your personality. And don't get me wrong, your personality will go into heaven. But, you know, all of us, we, we, our personalities need to be checked, right? Um, they need to be redeemed as well. The one thing about you that is heaven ready is the Spirit of God in you. And when the Spirit of God is in you, you delight and you know Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to fully restore. He's going to make this place the way it ought to be. And therefore, in the middle of brokenness, in the middle of decay, in the middle of tornadoes, because we understand what God has done in his kingdom, the good works that flow from our affections and desires for his kingdom in response to Christ Jesus, that we can look at it and say, man, Aslan's on the move. It's, it's not the way it's supposed to be, but one day it will be. We aren't going to do this, but we are going to be a sign. We're going to be a glimpse. We're going to be somewhat of a foretaste of what that would look like. And if you can just imagine if a people in response to Jesus and having affections for his kingdom, what that would look like if we lived that out loud, like what would our community look like? What would our neighborhoods look like? What would our workplaces look like? I mean, this is the desired life. And, and it's not something we go along individually, but it's something we desire to take others along with us. Because we realize, no matter what we look for in this world, as good as the things are, as good as the beauty is that we see, as good as the food that we taste and the music that we hear, that those things in themselves will never completely satisfy the holes that we have in our hearts. Because we were never made to be satisfied by these things. These things were made for us to be able to enjoy God, that only God can satisfy those things. In fact, there, there, there was another writer. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is C.S. Lewis. Speaking of this, 
Here's, sorry, I don't even know why I even bring these things up here. I ever use them. Here's what he says. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it my main object of life to press on to the country and help others to do the same. Like the glimpse when we see what God is doing, good works flow from the beauty of his grace and the work of his spirit in us. That our affections is we just want to be like Jesus and we want to be about what Jesus desires his people to be about. And, And like obedience flows from that. And I know a lot of times, like, that just doesn't seem cool, like, to love Jesus and want to be about what he's about. But if you are gripped with the love of Christ, that's what your whole affection should be for. And so what we pray for is our affections would grow for that. And so here, here, here's what I, I would say now is, well, how do our affections grow for that? Like, that sounds good. I want my affections to grow for Christ and in Christ. How? Well, first we have to understand the difference between attraction and affections. Uh, many of us know about attractions. The, a girl sees someone she likes, a guy sees someone she likes, and goes, oh, I wish I can get those digits, whatever, right? It's a phone number, all right? And they're, I'm attracted to them. They don't know them. There's no connection there. They're hoping. Most of them, it's wistful thinking to begin with, right? And then there's affections. And so one of the things we get to do here is we get to do a lot of weddings, like I was talking about the one I did yesterday and week for that as well, is that these two couples, they sit there and they, they make these vows to one another. And they say, my life now will no longer be lived for myself alone, but I will find my joy in giving myself to you. And the other person says, my, my life will not be lived for myself no longer. I will, I will find my joy in pouring myself out for you and meeting your needs. And then I will find my joy in meeting your needs. And that's very biblical. Like, that's, that's how we find our joy. But what happens is the two, they become one. They're connected. And anyone in this room who's been married, you know, your attractions, they go up and down. But your affections, when you constantly seek the other person and their needs and push them towards their most glorified end, and they do the same, your affections for each other, they grow when they grow. And this is the woman or this is the man of which your affections are most set on. So when you think about affections, it comes with being connected and, and giving yourself. Well, Jesus paints a beautiful picture for his church. In John chapter 15, he gives us a picture of the vine as well as the branch. And he says that he is the vine. And when you are connected as the branch, you will produce fruit. But if you are disconnected, if you are not connected to Christ, he goes, you cannot do good. And he's talking about salvifically good. He's talking about things that work in and without and from within the kingdom of God of the spirit. So it's not necessarily read more, pray more, do more, act more. It's rest. It's trust. Trust in the work in which he's already completed. And when you rest in Christ and you've seen what he's done on your behalf, when you begin to remind yourself that you are striving for works, you are striving for other things that will never satisfy and never draw you closer to the Lord, but you rest in him, and that flows from that is not only obedience. It's a desire to read your Bible. It's a desire to pray because you are in constant fellowship with God. And over a given period of time, when you exercise these disciplines, first by resting in God's grace, you will have a greater desire to live for God and your affections for him will grow 
And like C.S. Lewis says, you will make it your aim to be about the business of God and not only yourself, but to take others along with you. And, and, and Paul says in verse 10, to those group of people who love Jesus, here, here's what God gives to them. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. He's saying that this is the words as Christians we want to hear. Good job. Well done. My faithful servants. That God is looking at what we do and he says, I delight in that. Like that makes him look glorious. And that we want to do that not to get attaboys from God, but because he's done so much for us already in Christ. And so those are the people who seek glory. We've got to understand this too. God himself as a judge will still judge the Christians, those who live this way. And what Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians, he gives us this picture of saying that in that day, God is going to judge us on the last day. And he's going to look at all the works that we've done. And he's going to look at a lot of the things that we did in response to the gospel in some way, which are with our finite minds and his infinite minds, we can't really fully understand this. But some things that we do here um, that are a blessing to God and flow from the gospel, they will pass into the new heavens and new earth. They will pass into it. And there'll be other things that we're going to show up there and we're going to think that they're going to get in because we did some, you know, we thought we did some cool things for the Lord. And, and we're going to say, hey, God, what about that? And he's going to go, no, bro. Like, like, God, what about that? Remember that one sermon? I killed it, man. And he's going to be like, no, you didn't. <laughs> right? No, you didn't. And what the way Paul says is those things are going to burn. But there should be no fear in judgment. There should be no fear in life, no fear in death. And here's why. Remember, the root is what draws you into the kingdom of God, not your fruit. So the root comes from God. And what it, Paul talks about is there will be some people who wasted the gospel. Meaning you did not live your life in response to him in a certain way. But because God in his sovereign grace saved you, he says you will pass through, but as one escaping the flames. I mean, the picture is nothing you did here, you really lived for Christ Jesus. And that's not to say that you didn't live as a Christian. This is not to say that someone could live their life, their whole life, and never be obedient to the Lord. He's just communicating that there are some works that we do that are selfish. And they look good on the external, but they're not rooted in God. However, the the fear is removed because the root, God's gospel, the grace has been given to us by Christ Jesus. And that's the picture um, of people who seek glory that we should desire. That's a beautiful picture. That's why we spend most of our time on it. But then Paul turns the corner and says, not only will God judge them, he will judge the faithful and they will be with them for all eternity. But then he turns the corner in verses 8 and 9 and he paints a bleaker picture. A darker picture. And here's what he says in verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I mean, this is a contrast. He's saying the people, the people who disobey the truth, He's saying these people who are unrighteous, these people who do not live for God's kingdom, who do not seek God's agenda, it says these are people who are self-seeking, that they seek their own agenda, whether that's a political agenda, whether that's a philosophical agenda, whatever it may be, whether it's an emotional agenda, whatever they feel like doing, these people, he says, it's not going to go good for them. The word choice that he uses here, wrath and fury and tribulation, like these are words that you don't want to be described of God, of you. Never. Like never. And Paul's saying this is a reality. 
that there are some people that will live their life apart from God. This echoes Romans chapter 1 verse 20 when it says that they suppress the truth and they with, they're without excuse. This echoes chapter 2 verse 1 when it talks about the religious, those who live a good life, those who do all the good things apart from the gospel of grace and repentance. And he says they too are without excuse. And so it's not good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. He's saying good people and bad people find themselves in both camps. Like grace shatters it all because grace can take a very bad person and change their life. But apart from grace, you can have a very good person with no heart transformation. And the core issue is not so much what they're doing, it's what they don't respond to. They don't respond to the truth of God and the revelation Uh, The truth that has been revealed through creation. The truth that's been revealed through the preaching and teaching of his son, Christ Jesus, on behalf of the world. But it says that they disobey the truth and they obey unrighteousness. And so so I want to get this clear for us. This is is, not God is saying, these are the people I don't like. These are the people that say they don't want God and they don't like God. It's people who come here on a Sunday... Many of you who could be here now saying, I love coming here, but I'm not really sure yet. And it's our, it's my job to say, no, 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 no. Be sure of what he's done on your behalf. Because in the other side, it's not pretty. And it's never to scare you into the kingdom of God. God never scares people into the kingdom. He loves them to the kingdom. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. It's our unrepentant and penitent hearts, our hard hearts, that we reject the truth. And, and hear me on this. These are not people who are bad. And naturally, we naturally go, okay, these are people, in my mind, I have names. And we all have names. We have, like, the worst people in the world. Like, oh, you mean, like, these people. Don't think about them. Think about the family that you know that is amazing but that doesn't believe in God. Think about them. Think about the people that live in your neighborhood that are great. You let watch your kids. You trust. Think about them. Because the difference between those who seek glory and those who are self-seeking is not so much their their external actions. It's what they do with Jesus. It's what's underneath. It's what motivates them. It's just like we were talking about last week. There are many people who do incredible, incredibly good things. In fact, better than most of us in this room who say that we're Christians. I mean, all of us have friends that care about justice far more than we do. We all have friends who do not believe in Jesus, who pour themselves out for the poor way more than we do, experientially. They raise very good families. They care about people. They give their money away. I mean, they they do it in great ways. However, it's not for God's kingdom. It's another agenda, and it may be good things, but it's not centered in the person and the work of Christ. It's not tethered to him. And, and, And what Paul is saying is to, like, they too will be judged. And what we do with our own eyes, apart from wisdom and apart from discernment and and asking the Lord even sometimes miraculously to give us an understanding of people and their lives and their hearts, we look at people and go, man, look how awesome they're doing it. Like they go to church every day. These these people, they're great because all we can do is look at the externals and, you know, that's all we have. But God, like I said before, he is the, the divine fruit inspector. He looks at the heart. And sometimes there are plenty of people that have mechanical fruit and it's not organic. Um, they're able to produce it a lot and faster and even bigger, but it's not good for you. Um, the best way to think about this is in Arizona, it makes sense to us, is ornamental orange trees. And so I was like, how stupid is that, right? Like when I first moved to Arizona and I saw an orange tree, we had them all lined around the football field. And I thought, oh, this is great. One of these days after practice, I'm going to go grab myself an orange. Like, you know, after practice, 
you know, people are going to be grabbing Gatorades. I'll grab myself an orange. Very nutritious. I grab this orange. It smells like an orange. It looks like an orange. I open, I peel it just like a normal orange, and I bite into it, and it's the most sour thing in the world. Everyone's laughing. Ah. I'm like, what is this? And they're like, it's an ornamental orange. And I'm like, that's really dumb, right? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, like, for most people who maybe live in different states where they actually grow oranges, um, they really think that those are oranges, but they're not. And, and I, I communicate that is because there are a lot of people on the surface that look, look like what we said to those who see glory. There's a lot of people on the, the externals, many of us in this room, it looks really good. But when it gets to the heart of it, which a judge can do, remember, he says he's got wisdom, he's got discernment, and he's got truth. He always does what's good, what's right, and what's beautiful. And he has authority and he has power. What he can do is look right at the heart of it. And he's able to see who is doing things out of their own agenda, maybe saying God and using God to promote their agenda, to have a better family, the better, a better job, or whatnot, but not doing it out of a love for Christ. And what Paul says, sadly, is the end for those people is eternal insignificance. Which I think the irony is, most of us, all of us at some point in this room, we spend our lives trying to be significant. Trying to do the one thing or the few things to just have some sense of significance. And what God is saying is when you do that, and the foundation and the motivation is not the life of Christ, what you are doing is you are digging yourself a deeper and deeper ditch ditch of eternal insignificance of tribulation, of indignation, of of distress, that, that ultimately you will be separated from God for all eternity. And so those are the picture, picture God, uh, Paul paints for us. A God who judges all, those who in response to the gospel, in response to the truth, that, that they themselves, they seek God's glory and they produce good works. And those in denial or rejection of God's truth, that they produce works in themselves, but those works lead to destruction. And so as we, as we begin to close here, he, here's what Paul says as he wraps up this section in verse 11. He says, for God shows no partiality. And what he's saying there is, you keep hearing it saying to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What he's saying is, God's not saying I like Jews better than Greeks. He's not saying I like Greeks better than Jews. He says, it's not tall people, it's not short people, it's not black people, it's not white people. He goes, it's people. And I'm going to judge them with the same standard. And that's his standard. It's his. He's not great on a curve. He does not look at our lives and go, man, you, were, you know what? You didn't have a dad. Man, you, you, you came from a terrible situation. Um, he's not looking at all of that. He's saying at, at the very heart of it, he's given us his son, Jesus. What did you do with him? What are you doing with him? Are you responding to them? And are you responding and being cultivated like the picture we gave of the tree where the root is there by God's sovereign grace? Are you growing up into maturity and producing fruit? Or are you denying it? And are you growing up into something that produces internal insignificance? And so, so the worst thing for us to do is to say, you know what? I want to be that tree. And I want to produce good fruit. And so we walk out of here and we think, how can I try a little bit harder? What can I do to produce this fruit? No, I'm going to join a group. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to produce fruit. I need to be in a community. All things which are good. But the point of Paul's letter, the point of the Bible, is not go do more stuff so that you can rest in your work. Because there's a way that you can join a community, you can join a Bible study, you can share the gospel with people, people can come to know Jesus, and you can feel really good about yourself and still be on this side. The purpose of the Bible is never, because God is the judge, never to rest in your works. The whole point of the Bible, the whole point of Romans, the whole point of the biblical story is that we would rest securely and freely and permanently, not in our works, 
but in the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. And if we don't only start there, but we continue there, we never leave the beautiful news of the gospel. And what Paul is saying is the only way that fruit comes is not by your activity, by resting in his activity. Your good activity and your good works flow from resting and trusting in our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Amen? And so as we, as we walk out of here, the desire for us is to desire God's kingdom, to desire his glory, to desire his intentions, and to be connected to the vine. And by being connected to the vine, trust it is inevitable It is inevitable that Christ in us will work through us to produce these good fruits. But we first start and go back and continue where it all began, and that's the good news of Christ Jesus. Let us pray.